Hey everybody, good evening. Um, gosh, I feel like I've spent almost the whole last 24 hours here <laughs> uh, sitting in this chair and uh, being in session with you people. Uh, with, with, with many of you, I know many, I recognize many of you from yesterday. Um, Anyway, I, I hope that uh, most of you, anyway, were able to join us for at least some of the uh, of the webathon yesterday. That was a lot of fun. Um, I've had uh, uh, I, I had had sort of ideas of doing that for a long time, doing a kind of a marathon session, uh, but it took the initiative of um, it took the initiative of the Mythgard students to really make it happen, and they did a fantastic job. It was uh, so much fun yesterday. Uh, yeah. So anyway. Um, I'm just kind of having deja vu seeing the picture of myself on the webcam here uh, <clears throat> as I was staring at all day yesterday. So anyway, um, I, yeah, Carissa says her whole family had a blast, uh, that it should be annual. You know, maybe we will do something like that annually. I'm not sure. Doing it on Hobbit Day was, was fun. Uh, my one fear about doing it on Hobbit Day annually is that uh, we would... Be running afoul of other. I mean, like yesterday, we you know there were there were other, you know, major events both in person and uh, and uh, uh, online that were also happening. So maybe we you know pick another day when we're not uh, conflicting with everybody. But we'll see. Not quite sure, but we'll see. Anyhow, welcome, welcome to our. Uh, well, I see. Look, I almost said our final two towers session, but that seems like a rash statement. Um, our first bonus session uh, on the two towers. Um, the focal point for today is going to be uh, 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 getting through all of the stuff that I had wanted to talk about, but didn't get to talk about before. Um, and I couldn't just stay late on Thursday because I had to go cook dinner for my sons. So uh, anyway, so we're going to finish up <clears throat> with the choices of Master uh, Samwise uh, today. And then I'm going to go back. Uh, Yana had mentioned this. Uh, Yana in the, uh, see, Yana's here with us this evening again, once again, showing that uh, that uh, intrepidity for which uh, he has become legendary here uh, in uh, joining us at what is it two is it two thirty or three thirty in the morning? I can never, never I can never, never remember Yana if you're five or six hours ahead of me. Um, but um, anyway, um, Yana had suggested had reminded me that I had intended to talk about Aragorn's Gondor poem um, way back at the beginning of the Two Towers and had never uh, gotten the chance to, or yeah, had had to skip it. Um, and <clears throat> he uh, was, of course, quite right to remind me. So I've gone back and I've included that one too. So um, so we're going to talk about Sam, we'll talk about the Gondor poem, and then I'll talk about as many of the questions as I've received as I can, and then we will pretty much inevitably do another session uh, later on, and we will will um uh and then i will be able to get to a lot of the topics you guys have raised during the sessions that i haven't had a chance to to do you know many of the sort of the suggestions and questions that i've had to skip over um in you know that you guys have submitted live um and also some of the email questions that i've also gotten so we'll do we'll do one one last wrap-up session uh on those um anyway um okay uh Huh. Oh, that's a fascinating... Luke uh, was just throwing out a, an observation 
um, he's got to go soon because, of course, Luke has to get to class. Uh, he has his uh, preceptor session for the Mythgard philology class in 20 minutes. Um, but um, Luke was uh, pointing out, it's interesting that each of the three volumes of The Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring, Two Towers, and The Return of the King, each ends with a Frodo leaving Sam episode. You know, Luke, I had never thought about that. I had never noticed that. But yeah, it's true. The end of The Fellowship of the Ring, Frodo is attempting to depart uh, and leave Sam behind and fails. In the end of the two towers, he's being dragged off by orcs with Sam in pursuit, but still they're being separated. And then, of course, he's leaving him at the Grey Havens at the end of the Return of the King. That's fascinating, Luke. I had never noticed that. Um, I don't quite know what to make of that. I'd have to think about that a little bit more. It's not... Um, hmm... Yeah, I'd have to think about that a, uh, quite a bit more, I would say. Um, but um, but that's a fascinating connection. The, the first thing that I d- I'm doing right away, Luke, is I'm sort of comparing and contrasting those particular incidents because they're, um, they're quite different, of course. Obviously, the third one is the most different of all. Um, and it seems almost like the first two sort of set up the third one. Um, that is, the, of course, what the first two have in common is Sam grimly, doggedly, determinedly pursuing Frodo and refusing to leave him, um, either when he seems hopelessly lost in the Tower of Kirithungal or when um, Frodo is himself attempting to leave on his own. Um, and Sam appropriately excellently, correctly triumphs through his perseverance in sticking with Frodo. And then, of course, the third time um, Sam is, you know, has to let Frodo go. And to have, you know, the the trend be all in the direction of Sam sticking to Frodo and then Sam letting Frodo go at the end um, strikes me as one of the really most important things um in that pattern, uh, I mean that that's the that's the primary thing that jumps out at me is sort of thinking about the that it the first two incidents, the fellowship thing and the the, the fellowship in two towers incidents seem to me to be in that way an important setup to the third one because it really helps us to um, see the significance of that I think in a different way but it's very cool. Um, yeah, Luke says he, uh, he was thinking of uh, Baron and Luthien to some extent, you know, refusing to be left behind and stuff. Yeah, it is like in some ways. Of course, there are several parallels um, between Frodo and Sam and and, uh, and Baron and Luthien. But again, see here in The Return of the King, that's where you get the difference, right? Um, it's that separation which Baron and Luthien, they said no to that one too, right? Sam lets Frodo go. Um, let's Frodo go on his own. He will follow him eventually, but he lets him go. Um, and, you know, Frodo, in Frodo's speech about, you know, you, you were meant to be one in whole, Sam. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's true, Yana Sam will make his way to Valinor, but I think it's important for the ending of the story. So again, we find out later on that that happened, but, um, and I mean like not in the story itself in the, in, you know, uh, in the appendices and stuff, but, um, 
the so, so I wouldn't I wouldn't place the emphasis on their reunion. Certainly, the end of the Return of the King book is on their division, and that's the thing that I think makes it so importantly different. Um, yeah, James says, given the final words of the novel, Sam's Well, I'm Back, do you think it's a statement of Sam's establishment of his own identity and his own life, as Frodo begs him to do at the Grey Havens, and that Sam cannot truly be at peace with his adventure until he has made peace with himself? Yes. I'm pausing, James, because there's something in that... Um, phrasing, which makes me a little uncomfortable, and I think it's being at peace with himself. Because I don't think that Sam... I don't think it's quite right. I I, I see what you mean, but I don't think it's quite right to say. I I wouldn't agree with saying that Sam is not at peace with himself exactly. Rather, he's divided, as he says. He, He feels that torn in two, right? He's divided between two duties. Um... His duty and his devotion to his now wife and family, um, and largely, more largely speaking, to the Shire itself, right? To that life, in fact, which is like, different from, but like that Shire, you know, that Baggins-ish world from The Hobbit, right? You know, thinking of the Took and Baggins divide in The Hobbit, um, all of the things that the Shire is associated with, you know, the peace and contentment and beauty of the Shire um, is on the one hand, right? And then you've got his desire to serve Frodo and to stay with Frodo and to help Frodo on the other hand, and he's he's divided, right? And so, you know, he can't, um, you know, think of how poignantly he says, uh, you know, when Frodo says, you know, I know you can't be gone long now, of course, and uh, and Sam says, well, not very well, Mr. Frodo, right? Uh, you know, I, I I wish I could go all the way with you, but he can't very well be gone. He, you know, he he's very conscious of this division in his own, I don't want to say loyalties, because it's not like, you know, being loyal to, uh, you know, to his duty to Frodo and being loyal to his duty to uh, to, to Rose and his family and, 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 and the Shire are in conflict, because they're not. Um but uh, but they are pulling him in different directions. One towards contentment. You know, one is sort of rooting him down. And Frodo is not rooted, right? That's where Frodo ends up, is, um, you know, the, the Shire has been saved, but not for him. He can't settle down, um, like Sam hoped that he would, dreamed that he would, and he says he can't. Um, but Sam can, and Sam should. Um, however... You guys have very cunningly dragged me again into a Return of the King discussion, uh, but I shan't have it. We are going to finish the two towers tonight for crying out loud. Um, uh, uh, And that is that. Okay, thank you. Um, I will come to Arthur's question here as a means of sticking with Sam and bringing us back towards the choices of Master Samwise, if not 100% of the way there yet. Um, I'm especially uh, I'm especially uh, uh, glad to do so, because I know it's Arthur's, he's, Arthur had mentioned it's his first time uh, uh, in the net moot with us here this evening. Um, 
Mythgard, I think I told you guys before, Mythgard, the Mythgard students decided that webinar was a really dumb word uh, and unsightly, uh, so they uh, they elected democratically a more Tolkien-friendly name uh, for this thing that we use, and they call it the Netmoot. Um, so anyway, it's, it's a far better word than, <clears throat> than uh, webinar. Anyway, um, Arthur was saying... Um, uh, he wanted to ta- to talk a little bit about Sam's parallel with Turin. Um, he says, Turin is accidentally awakened by Beleg, is startled, and kills him. Sam is accidentally awakened by Smeagol, is startled, and harshly turns off Smeagol's potential rehabilitation. We know the chapter is entitled The Choices of Master Samwise. Um, while there was no Silmarillion at the time of publication, I can't help thinking about this link, given Turin's tendency to make bad choices, and Samwise doing somewhat better in this area. You're right, and Arthur, recall, that parallel is deliberately suggested in one or two ways. Um, after that, you're right about that waking up out of sleep and making a mistake. Um, he doesn't stab Gollum, but you could say he might as well have, you know, in one sense. Um, but uh, but then remember when Sam is underneath Shelob and he's trying to slash at her, he is compared with Turin, right? That um, you know, but 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 Shelob was not as dragons are, right? Um, and that no blade could pierce her, you know, even if the hand of 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 Baron or Turin wielded it. Um, and of course, the parallel is to the stabbing of Glaurung from underneath by Turin. And then rec- remember what happens right after this, right? What does Sam do after he doesn't quite slay the monster, but? you know, overcomes the monster and in the end by stabbing her from underneath and giving her a Glaurung-esque wound. We see him later on uh, uh, contemplating suicide. He looks at the point of his sword, doesn't doesn't talk to it, right? Sting doesn't talk back to him, so in that way he's different from Turin. But he contemplates you know, killing himself. He contemplates running himself through with his sword exactly like Turin did. Right, um, so there are you know again immediately in the aftermath of having stabbed Glaurung um, underneath. Now, obviously, circumstances are different. Obviously, I'm not trying to say they're they're exactly the same. But uh, what I am saying, though, Arthur, is that that comparison um, is one which seems fully warranted. Now, you're right, of course. There was no Silmarillion at the time, and no one was equipped to make... Although the text does suggest the parallel, especially if you do, in fact, know that story, uh, no one who read the story, again, with the exception of a small handful of people, was equipped to uh, to actually make that parallel, and or make that comparison, uh, and look at the two of them. But it's really interesting to do so, and I agree um, that Sam does a better job. And I think, thinking of his choices and the choices that he makes. It is interesting to contrast him to Turin. Um, Hey, you know, when I was devising the Turin scale, there were people who were suggesting that we need a separate unit for measuring of good choices. Uh, Maybe the Samwise should be the unit, really. That Actually, I kind of like that even better. Um, But, uh, anyhow. um, Let us return with that uh, ably assisted uh, by that excellent transition from Arthur who threw me a lifeline there to return back from the return of the king let us uh, let us uh, uh, go back to um, Sam here 
I read this passage last time. We didn't get too much time to talk about it. I want to just kind of look at this again so we can have it in our mind uh, freshly when we go to the next passage, which is the one that I really asked you to look at. Those of you who were uh, t- who were with me in class on Thursday, who have been able to, to, to listen or watch it since then, um, I, uh, I, I asked you to look at the Sam's debate uh, passage. But let's look at this again because I think this is a really important setup for it. What shall I do? What shall I do? he said. Did I come all this way with him for nothing? And then he remembered his own voice, speaking words that at the time he did not understand himself, at the beginning of their journey. I have something to do before the end. I must see it through, sir, if you understand. But what can I do? Not leave Mr. Frodo dead, unburied on the top of the mountains, and go home? Or go on? Go on? he repeated, and for a moment doubt and fear shook him. Go on? Is that what I've got to do? And leave him? And then at last he began to weep, and going to Frodo he composed his body, and folded his cold hands upon his breast, and wrapped his cloak about him, and he laid his own sword at one side, and the staff that Faramir had given at the other. Now, um, the elements I'd like to emphasize here about this passage before we move on. First of all, um, he ends up... I, I, actually, one small point I'd like to make just about those opening questions. What shall I do? What shall I do? Um, but what can I do? Um, I, As I'm reading it aloud, I don't know where to lay the stress. Because you could lay the stress in one of two different places, right? Um, what can I do? What can I do? What shall I do? Or, what shall I do? What shall I do? What can I do? Um... And I think that both of those emphases are relevant. That is, one of which he's saying, you know, sort of thinking of himself alone. What can I do? You know, clearly something is to be done, but what is there to be done that can be done by me, right, is I think one way in which he's asking this question. But another sense is, I have to do something. What is it? What should I be doing? Um, and I think those, you know, it's not that those two things are in conflict or anything, but I think that there are two different ways to, to sort of think about this. Yana makes exactly the connection uh, that I was making. Um, Yana says, isn't, uh, in a way, isn't this similar to Frodo's flashback to Gandalf's pity speech? Very much so, I think. Um, in fact, we even have a, uh, um, you know, typographic reminder of that. Again, that, you know, the colon and the italicized words. Um, we're not just being reminded of the general, you know, uh, and then he remembered something he said to Frodo about always sticking with him, right? It's not just a summary. We get a quotation, and we get a quotation in the first person that is, again, it's like, um, it's not quite as, the, the language describing it is not quite as strong as with Frodo, right? Where he's like hearing the voices and we're getting Gandalf's quotations and Frodo's quotations directly, um, like as if, Frodo is actually hearing voices. Here, um, Sam is explicitly remembering and not hearing. Um, but again, it is a quotation. It's not a general sense. He's hearing his own voice. And we, of course, very importantly, we the readers are being reminded of this also, um, so that we recall exactly what it was that Frodo, that Sam Um, said to Frodo. But notice also the emphasis, speaking words that at the time he did not understand himself at the beginning of their journey. Now, this isn't exactly Frodo or Sam speaking 
phrases of Elvish that they don't comprehend, right? That both of those just happened, um, you know, in uh, in in the last hour or so before Sam says this. Um, so that kind of intervention, that kind of some other voice speaking directly into his mind or even through his mouth, we've seen that happen. Um, uh, uh, if that's exactly what's happening. But anyway, here, it's different. He's just remembering it in his mind. Um, but notice how it happens. He's just asked a question. Well, three questions. Well, okay, two, one twice, right? What shall I do? What shall I do? Did I come all this way with him for nothing? And then, as if he is receiving an answer, he suddenly has this flash memory. I have something to do before the end. I must see it through, sir, if you understand. With the reminder from the narrator that he did not himself understand at the time what he meant. He was, in some sense, and I want to emphasize that because I'm about to use a dangerous word, he was in some sense inspired when he said that back in the Fellowship of the Ring. Now, I think you can see why I'm saying that that's a dangerous word. Dangerous in the same way that the word faith is dangerous when we were when I was using that word uh, several classes ago, talking about Frodo's faith or Aragorn's faith. Um, dangerous because it's it's easy to sort of jump to applying them or thinking of those words um, being used in the sense in which they're so 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 frequently and so significantly used in a specifically Christian uh, context. And I don't mean that exactly. Um, I mean it more broadly. Um, that, but but also literally, inspired means something to 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 have something breathed into you. Um, that's what the that's that's the root uh, of the word inspired. Um, and you know this 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 idea this notion was just like breathed into his mind he doesn't um he was inspired somehow by something we're not told how we're not told exactly whom um you know the lord of the rings never really pulls the curtain back on that mechanism but somehow he was inspired with this idea that he has something to do before the end in fact of his own doom in that one of the senses of the word doom that we've been looking at throughout this book, right? He has he has some fate. He has some destiny before him. And he is given... Uh, again, notice I am vaguely using the passive voice in just the way that your English teachers always told you not to do, but I'm doing it on purpose because we don't know who the agent is who does this, right? He is given a sense, a glimpse of his destiny, of his fate, of his doom, um, of you know, to, to use Frodo's language, the path that is laid before him, right? I have something to do before the end. I must see it through, sir, if you understand. He didn't know what it was. Now, when he asks the question, what shall I do? Did I come all this way with him for nothing? The answer is, no, you didn't. You have a job to do. You didn't come all this way with him for nothing. There was something, capital S, that you came here with him for. Um, there is a reason that you are here. Um, and, uh, you know, you're asking what shall you do? You shall do that thing that you were supposed to do before the end. And notice his response. But what can I do? Right? He doesn't deny it. He's like, no, 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 no. I'm not important. I don't have a fate. I don't have a destiny. He's like, okay, but what? <laughs> right? What can I do? And then he guesses, not leave Mr. Frodo dead, unburied on the top of the mountains and go home. It can't be that. Or go on. No, 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 wait go on, right? Notice he's, this is him thinking through what, what, what is that job? What is that thing? What is that reason? 
that I was here. If it is, in fact, my... If it wasn't for nothing that I came, if it was my doom to be here, what is that? Go on? And for a moment, doubt and fear shook him. Notice what's happened there. We have his own emotional response to the recognition of you know, of his apparent destiny, right? When that second idea, you know, his first idea is, I should go home, right? I'm supposed to go home? I, 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 I guess I go home, right? It's like, oh, wait, shoot. <laughs> uh, maybe go on. Is that go on? And he has this strong emotional reaction. Go on? Is that what I've got to do? And leave him? Now, one question to be asked, of course, is whom is he talking to here? Of whom is he asking these questions? To some extent, of course, you could say this is just an internal dialogue, right? He's asking himself. But with the way he is having, you know, that little intervention that happened in that first paragraph, um, uh, with, with this memory that is brought back to him of that time that he was previously inspired with a glimpse of his destiny, um, there is this sense, at least a limited sense, of his actually interacting with something beyond himself. Um, one could almost, it would be clumsy, but I'll do it anyway because I am clumsy, um, uh, it would be cl- uh, to describe this as Sam having a conversation with his own doom, or with the knowledge of his own doom? Um, is that what I've got to do? That That's my job? Right? He wouldn't use the word doom or destiny. He'd say job. Right? Is that is that the job? Um, and leave him? Seriously? Then at last he began to weep, and going to Frodo, he composed his body and folded his, clo- his cold hands upon his breast and wrapped his cloak about him, and he laid his own sword at one side and the staff of that Faramir had given at the other. Sam is responding emotionally in one way, right? Doubt and fear and weeping. But his actions immediately bespeak decision, right? Um, and leave him? he says, as if he can't even comprehend this idea, and what does he immediately do? Lays Frodo out for a funeral, like he's going to leave him, right? He's not going to lay him out like this if he were going to do something else, right? Um, He seems already, at least in one sense, or to some extent, to have made up his mind, right? He knows, having queried it, he knows what his job is, it seems. But but he's not done thinking about it. He uh, still then comes to the debate that we were looking at before. Now let me pause, and I, I know I'm not going to be able to um, um, get to all of your uh, comments here. Um, yeah, Jordan is wondering if Sam is putting too much faith in fate at this point. Um seeing if uh, this is what Sam's purpose was for the journey, then the, um, when the real purpose was given him at the beginning, don't you leave him, Samwise Gamgee, uh, to use the movie quote. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, now, in the book, you remember where that happened? Um, it's the elves who say that. Don't you leave him? And he says, I don't mean to. 
right? Um, I'll follow him if he goes to the moon. They laughed, right? The elves laugh. Of course they laugh. The elves laugh at everything. Um, the elves of Gildor and Glorian that they meet in the Shire are clearly the same elves. Um, I would be I, I would be willing to bet that Gildor was one of the Tralalalali elves in The Hobbit. He was totally there. That guy is a Tralalalali elf all the way. Um, but anyway, sidebar. Um, uh, so yeah, so Jordan, but that's exactly the question. Is he putting too much faith in fate? Is he mistaken about this? And he seems himself to have doubts, which is why he's going to go on uh, to have his uh, his little debate. Um, Sorry, I'm just scanning over your... Um, yeah, uh, Luke, that's a really great point. Luke says, I love how each of his options are a go, um, either forward or backwards. He doesn't contemplate staying or not going yet. Um, yeah, you're right. His first two impulses is, I guess I go home, or wait, I go on. Right? You're right. You know, it's, um, Staying um, doesn't occur to him yet, as you say. And that seems appropriate, uh, because he seems immediately to recognize, I mean, even to assume, um, that is, it's not, as you say, Luke, it's not part of his initial debate, right? Um, he, uh, his, his, his response is to say, um, we, um, to stay is to do nothing, right? Now, it's suicide, explicitly, of um, which he says, you know, that is to do nothing, not even to grieve, right? So it's it's uh, suicide, which is the real uh, cipher option uh, to do nothing. But again, to stay there until um, what? Like for what goal? To what end? Um, uh, does is not something that occurs to him right away here. Um, but uh, but let's go on to the debate. I welcome your observations uh, about this passage. And again, I would stress, as I've stressed before, observations. Um, it would be best um, try not to jump immediately to uh, to conclusions. We'll get there. Um, but it's best to start with specific uh, and objective observations, as objective as you can muster, uh, observations of what you notice here in the text as we go through "'What am I to do, then?' he cried again, and now he seemed plainly to know the hard answer. "'See it through. Another lonely journey, and the worst. "'What? Me? Alone? Go to the crack of doom and all?' "'He quailed still, but the resolve grew. "'What? Me take the ring from him? The council gave it to him!' "'But the answer came at once, and the council gave him companions "'so that the errand should not fail, and you are the last of all the company.' The errand must not fail. I wish I wasn't the last, he groaned. I wish old Gandalf was here, or somebody. Why am I left all alone to make up my mind? I'm sure to go wrong. And it's not for me to go taking the ring, putting myself forward. But you haven't put yourself forward. You've been put forward. And as for not being the right and proper person, why, Mr. Frodo wasn't, as you might say, nor old Mr. Bilbo. Excuse me, nor Mr. Bilbo. They didn't choose themselves. Ah, well, I must make up my own mind. I will make it up, but I'll be sure to go wrong. That'd be Sam Gamgee all over. Let me see now. 
if we're found here, or, or Mr. Frodo's found, and that thing's on him, well, the enemy will get it. And that's the end of all of us, of Lorien and Rivendell and the Shire and all. And there's no time to lose, or it'll be the end anyway. The war's begun, and more than likely things are all going the enemy's way already. No chance to go back with it and get advice or permission. No, it's sit here till they come and kill me over my master's body and get it, or take it and go. He drew a deep breath. Then take it, it is. Okay. What do you notice? Now, um, I would like to make reference to, I noticed that Tom uh, Hillman was not able to join us tonight. He's been uh, with us for most of the uh, Two Towers classes, and he sent me a long and thoughtful email about this passage, um, I think because he knew he couldn't be here tonight. Um, so I did want to mention an observation that he made, and um, that Arthur was just pointing out also. The question, who's talking in this debate? Um, one, we can assume that this is Sam talking to himself, right? But is it? We should pause to ask that question uh, and see if we can answer it. Um, Arthur asks the same thing. Uh, there are two voices. One is clearly Sam, but it's not made clear that the other voice is Sam, although it does use Sam's dialect. Um, yet Tom was suggesting if you follow up the the hint provided by the... Uh, that flashback scene that we were talking about that Yana was pointing out, that parallel to Frodo's flashback to his conversation with Gandalf, we already have in Sam's consciousness prior to this um, that kind of intervention in his mind, right? You know, he's being reminded of this, you know, this this flashbulb memory is being sort of planted in his mind as it was for Frodo. We've had on several occasions um, some voice sort of speaking either directly into somebody's mind, um, or, uh, or even through them. You know, again, we've had the, them spouting Elvish that they didn't know. We've had, um, you know, Gandalf's voice, the capital V voice, um, in Frodo's mind at, uh, Amon Hen. Um, so Tom is right to say that there is enough precedent to think that it's plausible that Sam is actually having a spoken conversation with somebody instead of just uh, with himself. Um, there is a shift, as a couple people are pointing out. We do get a shift. Remember, we were paying uh, close attention to the pronouns when we were looking at Gollum's debate. Um, we get a pronoun shift here, too, right? Um what me alone, what me take the ring from him, and you are the last of all the company. I wish I wasn't the last, but you haven't put yourself forward. I must make up my own mind. Right? We do get that shift from first person to second person. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Now, uh, let's see. Yeah, Arthur makes two observations. First, that in that last paragraph, it seems to be the turn of the second voice to speak, um, but it shifts into the first person. But, as, as Arthur then immediately points out, that last paragraph is actually a continuation. Notice there's never a close quotation there. We do get, 
you know, the inverted commas, as they call them over in England, um, you know, the quotation marks there, um, we get closing and opening quotations just like we would get if we did have a conversation between two people here. Notice also we get no, is that, am I right in saying this? We get no conversational tags um, for that second voice, right? The only thing we get is, but the answer came at once, which is ambivalent, right? Um, did, did the answer come to him? Um, or is an answer just coming? Is he just hearing an answer the second time, but you haven't put yourself forward? We get no conversational tags whatsoever there, right? Um, and if there, so if there is this other voice, it speaks twice, right? Um, and the council gave him companions, and but you haven't put yourself forward. Those two paragraphs are this other sense. Um, Chuck and James have both raised a re uh, relevant question. Chuck Snow and James Spahn um, both raised a very relevant question here, um, which is... Could this be the ring? We we you know we should keep in mind that we have we do have another entity present, right? Who is not an ethereal uh, voice, uh, but does in fact have a will, and we have seen um, uh, influence uh, people's minds directly, uh, and certainly played a big role uh, in Gollum's own internal debates, um, even in sort of creating the frame of mind in which Gollum does talk to himself that way. Um, so, uh, yeah. Now, Dime asks, weren't there editorial issues? Can we trust the inverted commas? You're right, Dime, to be cautious about that. Um, that's exactly the kind of thing that you should never just take for granted, uh, because it is exactly the kind of thing that editors and proofreaders would change in a heartbeat without uh, a qualm. Um, and that's the kind of thing that, that does happen. Now, Tolkien tried to be pretty vigilant about changing those back if he found that the proofreaders um, had made alterations of this kind. But of course, Dime, as you point out, sometimes there are uh, subsequent editors who have made changes. I was telling the story last night in the Webathon about um, the, uh, the famous and hotly contested case of the ponies, uh, the six ponies uh, that are saddled up and ready to leave Crick Hollow. Um, uh, uh, which were, was changed in a recent edition uh, of the Lord of the Rings to Five Ponies uh, because the editors thought it was a mistake having forgotten about um, uh, Fatty Bulger's pony, which he would have ridden out and ridden back. Um, uh, uh, you know, led to big fights. But anyway... Um, uh, so, 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 Dime, you're right. We shouldn't build an argument around that. Um, we'd really have to go back and look at manuscript evidence to support this. Um, but, uh, but anyway, so we, we can't construct a case around that, but it is, uh, um, it's still something I think that we can, that, that, that's worth, uh, that's worth seeing. Um, and, uh, and, and noting again, we can't, we, we can't have it be our primary piece of evidence. Um, my bigger question here is, okay, back to the ring issue. Could the ring be influencing him? Give me some arguments for or against. Um, what... Does that... 
does that fit? If the ring is influencing him, <clears throat> it would be out of character. <clears throat> there's never been any instance, unless I'm forgetting one, there's never been any instance of the ring actually speaking to somebody that is actually putting words, like, you know, getting its own dialogue. The ring has never gotten dialogue. It has induced dialogue. <clears throat> it seems to plant ideas in people's mind and to influence them to think in certain ways and therefore perhaps say certain things. <clears throat> but we've never had an instance of the ring speaking. Now, <clears throat> you could argue, well, of course, the ring's never been this powerful. It's never been this close to Mordor. It's gaining in stature. Uh, sure. But... Um, But anyway, worth noting. Okay, <clears throat> arguments. Um, we've got several arguments for. Okay. Um, Alyssa says, The ring wants to move on if it reaches a dead end, and it acts to that effect. Okay. Um, so, alright, yes. Um, we do have evidence, as we have just were just looking at in the, in the Morgul Vale passage, uh, that the ring does seem to be acting and acting quite strongly. Remember, it's like overwhelming Frodo's will and driving Frodo's hand towards uh, towards the ring in order to put it on and reveal itself uh, to the Lord of the Ring Wraiths. Um, we have plenty of evidence that the ring is wanting to take action to reveal itself. Um, urging Sam to take it so that uh, it could be found, one could argue um, that that's uh, that that's something the the ring would want to do. Maybe James says the ring preys on fear and negative emotion and gets stronger the closer it gets to Mordor. Um, the ring makes you think they're your thoughts. Yes, that's right. Um, Though, James, what I want to see here is, okay, we do get plenty of negative emotion by Sam, of course, uh, you know, fear and dread and grief, but um, basically, if the ring is acting here, I gotta think the ring is acting on either one side or the other of this debate, right? Um, that if, maybe I'm just being overly simplistic in how I'm looking at it, um, but the, the way that makes most sense to me to look at this is if one of these two things is a ring-induced perspective. Um, uh, no, wait. Let me come in again. Box myself in. Um, if the ring is influencing him, <clears throat> one or two, one or the other of these two debating courses is going to be ring-influenced. Um, and so my question is, which one? Which one? <laughs> Sorry, Jessica suggests that it's Sting speaking, uh, just like Ed Turin's suicide. You know, you got the sword, of course, is 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 speaking up. Yeah, there's precedent. There is precedent for that kind of thing. Um, <clears throat> though in the past, they've only ever sp uh, sp uh, spoken while uh, being spoken to. Um. Arthur says, one would think that if the ring spoke, it would be to influence Sam to leave it where it will be found by the bad guys. See, Arthur, I'm a little torn about that. I mean, um, it depends on exactly how knowing and wise uh, we deem the ring to be. Um, that is, how much forward planning the ring is capable of doing. <clears throat> um, of course, we know that the ring is going to be saved, that 
we know, because we know what's about to happen, that had Sam left the ring with Frodo, the ring would have been found by the orcs. And so therefore, the, the truly shrewd thing for the ring to do, if the ring were taking a hand in this, is to get Sam to leave it instead of Sam to take it. So if, but, that's not a, but that's not proof to me. Because to say that it's perfectly plausible to me that the ring influences Sam to take it from Frodo, uh, but unfortunately for the ring, um, ironically, the ring's own action turns around to circumvent it that would be absolutely par for the course, so that to me is no evidence that that's not the ring. Um, the fact that the ring's uh, attempt to reveal itself turns out to backfire, that's what always happens. Um, but, uh, so yeah, so again, that to me, that's... Um, uh, now, Jordan makes a point, and Jordan, I, you're thinking exactly what I'm thinking. Um... Jordan points out that it's also very... What is being said here are very unring-like ideas. This doesn't sound like a ring-induced monologue. I agree. That, to me, I don't believe that the ring is acting here, and that's why I don't believe. Neither one of these voices sounds like the ring or somebody influenced by the ring, right? People influenced by the ring... Um, start saying, like, fantasizing about being Gollum the Great and having fish from the sea, or being a, becoming a king benevolent and wise, uh, or, uh, you know, uh, be, you know, uh, becoming a, a, a queen with all of the ways that Goadriel describes what she would become if she took the ring. You know what I mean. Um, what do we see in both of these sides? Um, the one side, the first side, the what am I to do then, what me alone go to the crack of doom and all um, side, um, is not wanting to put himself forward, right? Um, I'm sure to go wrong. He's not thinking grandiose thoughts about himself. He's thinking the opposite of grandiose thoughts about himself. Um, He is keenly aware of his own weakness and his own... um, unsuitability. That's a really gentle word to use for this, but anyway, his own unsuitability for this task. Um, This does not sound like somebody who is being tempted to dominate others, who is rationalizing the acquisition, the, you know, the, 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 the subtle, um, uh, first step down the road to the acquisition of power for himself. He doesn't sound like that. Um, his reasoning at the end, uh, you know, here notice I'm sticking with the first voice here, looking at what the first Sam voice and the character, you know, what, what that emphasizes. Um, uh, you know, if Mr. Frodo's found and the thing's on him, then the enemy will get it, and we don't want that, right? Uh, that doesn't seem... Okay, I mean, if the ring is doing that, maybe it thinks it's deceiving him uh, into taking it. Uh, you know, it's like using reverse psychology on Sam. I, You know, maybe again, but... Um, you know, okay, okay, you know, no chance to go back with it and get advice or permission. Is that rationalization? Right? Um, I've got to take it and go. I don't think that's ring-induced monologue. I think that is, like, ironic, triumphantly ironic parallel to ring-induced monologue. Um, notice the capitalization of it. No chance to go back with it. Uh, and gets it, or take it, and go. Does that sound like anybody to you? 
right? Um, we wants it. Take it. And this is exactly how Gollum talks about it, right? Um, we wants it. We wants it. Um, give it back to Smeagol. Uh, this is, you know, that, that, that significant use of the it pronoun. Um, then take it. It is, right? Then he fulfills Stinker's uh, fantasy of reaching out and taking... Uh, the ring off of Frodo's comatose body, right? So there's a clear, there's a real parallel at the end of this this debating voice. Which, however many voices are actually, whether or not it's Sam actually speaking to himself, we certainly should all be thinking of this Linker and Stinker conversation, right? I mean, I think that I think the parallel between those two, and this is something we've seen throughout this book, right? Lots of these kinds of parallel scenes. Um, you know, where I feel like the text is really inviting us to make these comparisons. Um, so we've got Smeagol's debate and Sam's debate. Um, there are different dynamics involved, of course, but we're clearly comparing them. They end exactly the same way, right? That is with somebody clawing towards the neck of Frodo to take the ring. But my point is not, in fact, that Sam and Stinker are the same, that Sam is being overcome by the ring. He's clearly not being overcome by the ring. The parallel establishes the contrast. The spirit with which he takes the ring, the spirit of the, 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 the unwillingness genuine, not, I believe, rationalized unwillingness. They're like, oh, no, really, I shouldn't. No, no, I'll just take it for a little bit. I really don't want to, but, you know, okay. No, I, I really do not, that's not how I hear Sam talking there. He has to talk himself into taking it because that destiny is upon him, that doom is upon him, and then he does take it. And again, it's the contrast between him and Stinker. He is the anti-Stinker when he reaches out and takes the ring from Frodo in completely the opposite spirit to how Gollum wanted to take it from Frodo. And so, I don't believe that voice number one uh, that doesn't sound like the ring to me. That doesn't sound like the work of the ring. How about voice number two? Less so, I would say. The council gave him companions so that the errand should not fail, and you are the last of all the company. The errand must not fail. Um, well, there's a little bit of an impulse towards grandiosity there, I guess. Um, you haven't put yourself forward. You've been put forward. And as for not being the right and proper person, you know, Mr. Frodo wasn't, nor Bilbo. They didn't choose themselves. Is this rationalization? No, I think it's reasoning, not rationalization. I think that this is, um, you know, he is, uh, and it, uh, yeah, what I hear here is not the ring. What I hear here is a continuation of what we saw before in the previous passage. That is, Sam in his own agency, Sam in his own will, um, Sam, Hobbit of the Shire, um, thinking of that previous passage about Frodo that we talked about last time, um, wrestling with this idea of his doom, this idea of his destiny. Um, He has a sense, he's had a sense for a long time, that he had some significant job to do, that he had to see it through. And now he knows the hard answer. See it through. Again in italics, again in the words of that premonition, that inspiration that he had way back in the Fellowship of the Ring before he'd even left the Shire. Um, He's known that he had something to do and he had to see it through, and now he is attempting uh, to see it through. Um, That voice, I do believe that Sam is speaking both sides of this. Um, I am receptive to Tom's uh, theory, uh, which again Arthur was was also suggesting. I don't know, Arthur, I don't know if you're as committed to it, um, but um, 
but I'm I'm I I am not wildly opposed to the idea that some that he is hearing some other voice, but the answer came at once and that it's coming from outside him. I'm not convinced. I don't believe it. I believe that the answer is coming to him. This way, this time though, before it was just coming into his mind. It came into his mind in the memory. It came to him. Uh, we saw it before. Remember, I just going back for a second. Um, but what can I do? Not leave Mr. Frodo dead, unburied on the top of the mountains, and go home or go on, go on. The answer just came to him, right? Um, what shall? What? What can I do? And he receives the answer. Now he's receiving the answer again, but the answer is now coming in words, and they are his own words. As Arthur, as you were pointing out, it is in his dialect. This sounds like Sam. Um, Sam would say, you know, why Mr. Frodo wasn't, as you might say, nor Mr. Bilbo. That sounds like Sam, right? It's Sam's voice. Um, It's Sam's tone of voice that's speaking. I think, therefore, what we have here in that previous scene, that previous initial debate, that first recollection of his destiny, we see Sam um, kind of encountering or confronting this sense of of his doom, of his destiny, of the job that has been set for him. Now he has internalized it, internalized it to the point that he can advocate for it, he can speak for it in his own voice, right? Um, We have him now, Sam Gamgee, simultaneously voicing the two different sides. He knows, he has known for a long time that he had this doom, that this doom was upon him, and that he was fulfilling it that he had to fulfill it. Um, and that gives him arguments to, to defeat the arguments which are a little bit desperate um, of his own personal will, right? Of his own personal identity, of Sam, a hobbit of, the Hobbit of the Shire. Um, what, me alone? Go to the crack of doom and all? Me take the ring from him? Notice the italics there. Me take the ring from him? Right? Me, me, Sam, the servant, step forward and take the ring from Frodo. So put myself forward in that way, right? This is Frodo's job. And for me to to take that upon myself, no way, right? Sam in himself, Sam in his own persona, in his own will, um, can't contemplate that idea. But the Sam who is recognizing, who is already confronted that destiny, that doom, that task, uh, that that path that has been laid before him has answers for that. Um, and leads him to the conclusion. Though that protesting voice of Sam's own will and Sam's own um, sort of self-identity independent of the task that he's been set on... Um, is still saying, I'm sure to go wrong, that'd be Sam Gamgee all over. Um, and that voice speaks up again and and uh, yells at himself, right? Later on, as we'll see. But, um, but the voice that wins here is the voice which seems to be advocating the position of sort of the recognition of his, of his doom. Um... Yeah, yeah, Don says he's like Butterbur who can see through a brick wall in time. He has to walk himself through it. Um, yes, yes. Chuck says the whole dialogue is Sam justifying something he would normally not do. Um, uh, 
Yes, and Chuck, I agree. A couple of you have pointed out the fact that we do get a clear, certifiable, undeniable instance of Sam having a ring-induced monologue, right? And that's the vision of himself turning all of Mordor into a garden and, uh, and you know, a garden swollen to the size of a realm. That's at the beginning of the Return of the King, and thus I shall not be drawn into talking about it tonight. Um, but, but Chuck, you are absolutely right. It is that passage more than anything else. Um, there we obviously have, and he himself recognizes the fact that these thoughts are just a cheat, right? That he is being tempted, that he is being deceived. And if you look at the thoughts that come into Sam's mind when he is obviously being tempted by the ring, and both sides of this dialogue, it's that more than anything else that convinces me the ring is not really acting here. Um, uh, interesting. Arthur says uh, that it... Um, it reminds him of Oloran putting fair visions of hope in the hearts of the children of Iluvatar. Uh, yeah, now, Arthur, does that mean this is Gandalf acting from afar? We've seen Gandalf acting from afar before. I don't think so. He said they've passed beyond uh, his help, and he seems in genuine ignorance of what's going on with them when he meets Faramir again in The Return of the King, which I won't talk about. But, um, uh, but Arthur, in general terms... Yes. Um, to cite that, if we if we look back at that Aloran passage merely as an illustration of how the minds and hearts of the children of Iluvatar can be influenced and have these ideas breathed into them in that way by, you know, spiritual, um, you know, forces, spiritual beings who are acting in the world, even sometimes without the knowledge of the people. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Arthur was just clarifying that that's, that that's what he meant, that it could be a higher power acting acting in that way, maybe even the voice of Iluvatar, possibly. We, t- we don't get that. I mean, it's impossible to say um, with any certainty whether that's the case or not. Um, the Lord of the Rings is extremely shy about going there. Um, even the Hobbit goes there much more directly, in a sense, than the Lord of the Rings does, I think. Um, but, anyway, um, so that's that's my reading of the debate. Um, that, I get, that it seems to me to follow on what we saw before, with that internal debate, um, which is now being sort of externalized in the fact that he's now giving voice to it. But again, there I see that as a stage in Sam's integration of that idea into his own that again now he himself is able to give voice uh, not just to respond to these thoughts um, the thoughts that the recognition or the, re- the the recalling this what I was calling his confrontation with his with his doom with his destiny were, 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 were presenting to him but now he's actually articulating the arguments of that doom um, and the second voice goes away um, it stops alternating and stays at the first voice because the first voice, uh, the Sam alone voice, has been convinced. Um, and now the two of them get integrated in that final speech, I think. Uh, in a sense, they're never really separate in another sense, but I think you uh, you know what I mean. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Um, oh, yeah, Arthur, I, I do, I do want to clarify. In saying that, in saying that about how shy the Lord of the Rings is about talking about, you know, Iluvatar directly or anything like that, I'm certainly not trying to argue that, um, I'm not trying to build that into an argument against, uh, 
the concept of providence or the presence of God in this story. I think that it's uh, it's certainly either directly or indirectly uh, what I think is happening here. That is to say, I think one could have a debate, you know, is it a Luvatar who's acting directly in the events of the Lord of the Rings, or is it the Valar who are acting directly in... To me, the answer there is a little bit academic. Um, not that it's a totally insignificant question. It's not an insignificant question. But it doesn't solve any big mystery to me. Uh, the question is, are there, you know, is the power for good? Is, the, is, is, is providence, the providence which is, you know, uh, indicated and, uh, and, uh, and enacted through the music of the, of the Ainur, um, do we see that acting? Are we being reminded of the presence of that, um, you know, at times throughout this story? Yes, very much so. Um, what I'm hesitating with, Arthur, is simply not wanting to go too far in rendering explicit things that the text itself doesn't render explicit, because when we do that, we start getting on kind of shaky ground. Um, and it's easy to start making leaps from there, um, which will take us away from the text a little bit, if you see what I mean. I, I, I tend to be cautious uh, in my approach to that uh, kind of thing, if you see what I mean. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, good, Yana. Yana says it's the, uh, it's, it's the low-to-the-ground hobbit perspective again. The hobbits aren't aware of the Valar or Eru. They, they just don't think of it that way, so we don't get any kind of that, that sort of talk. Um, Yana, I think you're probably right uh, that if you know, this story had been told from, say, you know, you know, an elvish point of view, if we were getting, you know... If the textual history of the Lord of the Rings didn't start at the Red Book of Westmarch, but instead started with uh, a record made by a scribe in Rivendell, um, having compiled, you know, having having heard the accounts of the travelers and talked to Gandalf and Elrond and Galadriel before their departure and Celeborn afterwards, and uh, and then you know sat down to write the version of the story, which might have sounded more like the Silmarillion. Um, would the story have sounded different? Yeah, well, I'm sure it would. But Jan, as you say, that's not the story we get. Um, <laughs> Case says she'd like to read uh, Tolkien's version of the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Me too. Actually, that would be awesome. Um, yeah, and Arthur, I agree. Probably a, a Numenorian would explain it in a more theological way. Um, that also seems fair to me. Um, had Faramir written this story, would he have written it differently? Yeah, I think he would have. Um, yeah, but um, but let's carry on with Sam. Here's Sam realizing that the orcs are um, have found Frodo. With a dreadful stroke, Sam was wakened from his cowering mood. The ring has induced a cowering mood upon him when he puts it on. They had seen his master. So notice, by the way, the the ring is affecting him here, and notice what the ring brings him. The ring gives puts him in, into a kind of paralysis, almost. Um, inaction is what the ring seems to inspire in him. Um, whereas, again, coming back to the point that Luke ma uh, made immediately before he bailed uh, very appropriately and responsibly to go attend class, um, Sam's first thoughts are, which way do I go, right? Not, do I do nothing? Um, the ring freezes him. Anyway, okay. 
They had seen his master. What would they do? He had heard tales of the orcs to make the blood run cold. It could not be borne. He sprang up. He flung the quest and all his decisions away, and fear and doubt with them. He knew now where his place was, and had been, at his master's side, though what he could do there was not clear. Back he ran, down the steps, down the path towards Frodo. How many are there, he thought. Thirty or forty from the tower at least, and a lot more than that from down below, I guess. How many can I kill before they get me? They'll see the flame of the sword as soon as I draw it, and they'll get me sooner or later. I wonder if any song will ever mention it, how Samwise fell in the high pass and made a wall of bodies round his master. No, no song. Of course not, for the ring will be found, and there will be no more songs. I can't help it. My place is by Mr. Frodo. They must understand that. Elrond and the council and the great lords and ladies with all their wisdom. Their plans have gone wrong. I can't be their ring-bearer. Not without Mr. Frodo. So Sam chucks it all up. Keep in mind, he does not yet know that Frodo is alive. Right? He still believes Frodo is dead. What he is contemplating here... um, and this was not an option he had had before. Remember, go home or go on. Um, you know, that brief flirtation with, you know, I can't, you know, I, even just to say I can't really take the ring back to get advice or permission. Right? I can't, you know, go back to Minas Tirith and, 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 and regroup, right? Um, that's not an option. At none of those points had he contemplated, I'm just going to stand here by Mr. Frodo and make a wall of bodies around his corpse when the uh, when when the orcs find us. That hadn't been on the table before. Now all of a sudden, it's that weighed against uh, you know taking the ring and going, and he immediately chucks the quest, chucks his destiny, uh, uh, doom out the window. I'm going to go back and I'm going to. Uh, what, doesn't it sound in this passage like Sam is, uh, has all of a sudden been reading way too many Norse epics? Um, the, 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 <laughs> doesn't this all sound very frightfully Germanic? Um, uh, you know, uh, how many can I kill before they get me? I mean, is that how many how many Germanic epics could be could be summarized with that one question, right? Or how many how many how many uh, Germanic uh, heroes um, could have asked exactly that question? Um, that's um, yeah, yeah. That's where he goes, and he says, "I was wrong. I was wrong." Um, uh, Elrond and the council and everybody. Their plans have gone wrong. I can't be their ring bearer. I, I, I regret the choice that I just made. I've got to go back for Frodo. Yeah, Chuck says it's a hobbit Ragnarok, a very small scale Ragnarok. Um, yeah. Well, Sarah, see, it's exactly is this over mode or not uh, for for Sam? Uh, you know, it sounds like a, a, a almost a moment of over mode. Um, I don't, Sarah's taking uh, 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 Tom Shippey's philology class, and they've been talking about that, and he talked about that a little bit in Beyond Middle-Earth last semester uh, as well. Um, Alyssa says, with they must understand that comes in another possibility. Was Sam arguing before with a construct of what he thought others wanted of him, the perspective he imagined that the great lord, lords and ladies would have had? Um... Yes, I don't go all the way there, Alyssa. I think that, I mean, 
On the one, let me come at this another way. On the one hand, I do agree with you that certainly I do think that Sam identifies this sense of his doom, this sense of his of his job, of his destiny that I've been talking about before. He certainly does identify that with Elrond and Goadriel and Gandalf. That you know they they had some kind of sense of this. They had some plan which was in line with that capital P plan. You know, with his doom, um, that they were kind of in touch with this and that they knew what they're doing. Um, and so when he's talking about you know in that previous debate. There is, a, you know, he does appeal to the council, right, and to to, to Gandalf and Galadriel and all them, um, that uh, th- he can be confident that he's right in understanding what his doom was because it does line up with what all those wise people all seem to suggest that that he was given companions so that the quest might not fail. Um, so, but 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 that's why I don't go all the way. I don't go all the way to saying that he's simply you know, he's simply, like, Sam is sitting there doing a, you know, um, you know, WWGD moment, you know, what would Gandalf do? It's not just that, right? He does recognize that uh, Gandalf would support this argument, and so he is kind of vicariously bringing in the great lords and ladies in support of the thing, of that destiny which he has recognized. But the thing to me which, um, the thing to me which is which prevents me from uh, really going all the way with that reading is that that first sense, that first premonition of his destiny that which came to him while in the Shire didn't come from the council, didn't come from Elrond, didn't even come from Gandalf. Um, it was just something that came to him. Um, he's got something to do. And you could say came after his encounter with the elves. So there was perhaps arguably a great lord involved, but I, but I don't I, I don't think so. It's not about the council. It's not about these other things. And he's never referring back to Gildor in that way. Um, no, this seems just to be... I mean, that was the occasion on which this, this uh, was stirred. But I don't think um, that we can see that, 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 that he's doing that. But again... When he decides to, to chuck up his doom, right, to go against his doom, as he's just reasoned it out, it is like he is immediately going back to the great lords and ladies, right? Like he knows they would tell him not to do this. And he's like, I'm sorry, people. All those people who aren't here that I'm now arguing with, I'm sorry. Um, you know, your plans have gone wrong. He's not speaking in the second person, of course. I can't be their ring bearer. Um, this isn't going to work. Not without Mr. Frodo. So he's going to go back. Again, remember... Mr. Frodo is dead, as far as he knows, right? His decision, not without Mr. Frodo, this is not a, I'm not going to leave you, Frodo, this is a, I'm not going to leave your body, right? I'm going to go and, you know, because I cannot bear the thought of orcs mutilating and probably eating Mr. Frodo's body, I'm going to go and... I don't want to just say commit suicide because it's different from casting himself upon his sword. He's had the suicide thoughts and he's not going there. And I don't want to cheapen uh, Germanic heroic literature by simply characterizing this kind of uh, desperate and despairing resolve, um, which is so common among Germanic heroes, as simply a suicidal wish. I think that's a that's a terrible mischaracterization of that. Um, but... Um, um, but anyway, 
it's despair, certainly. It is, it, it is, it is a despairing resolve on Sam's part, even if it's not an actively suicidal resolve uh, on Sam's part. Um, not without Mr. Frodo sounds to me like Sam voice number one reasserting itself, right? Um, it was briefly talked into this, um, to taking up the mantle of doom um, and uh, out of necessity becoming the ring bearer. But now it's turning back away from that. Um, so now my question is, is he right or wrong? And which time? Is he right the first time and wrong the second time? This one, when he's going to go back and make a wall of bodies, is the second time. His decision to take it and go is the first time. Was he right the first time and wrong the second time? Or was he wrong the first time and right now that he should not have left Mr. Frodo? Or is he wrong both times? He can't be right both times. I think that's not possible, logically. But um, but he could be wrong both times, conceivably. <laughs> um What do you think? Um, Carissa thinks he's right both times. Yeah, Kay says, uh, my trouble is Sam thoroughly convinces me that he's right both times. Um, I'm totally on board with him seeing it through when he decides that, and then I'm totally on board with the new wall of bodies plan. Um, uh, Sam is so dang persuasive in his innocence, humility, and earnest loyalty. Um, Don says he's right the second time. Service is the greater good. But he's not serving Mr. Frodo. I mean, okay, he is in preserving mutilation of his body. But he's dead. If it were preserving him from death, that's a different thing, right? Um, Yana points out, and he's right to say, there has been precedent for emphasis being placed on this. I'll read what Yana says. Yana says, preventing bodies from being spoiled and harmed has come up before. With Boromir, they contemplated how they could manage his funeral with you know, no obvious options, um, and they did take uh, pot- uh, potentially crucial time um, to arrange for the safety of his body. Um, I think of Aragorn's, you know, let us do first what must be done, right? They do consider uh, some kind of proper, proper and respectful disposal uh, disposal. What a horrible word of Boromir's body. Um, treatment. I'm. I'm not. I'm losing nouns. Uh, but anyway, um, handling. I can't come up with a right noun. They're proper. Uh, uh, um, somebody help me. Give me a noun. The thing that they should do with Boromir's body. Because um, that's not awkward. Uh, anyway. Um, Aragorn views that as something that must happen. Like, yes, okay, remember we talked about his debate about, like, do I pursue Merry and Pippin? Do I go after Frodo? Um, But he says, whichever one we do, right, priority over both of those things, in a sense, is first we've got to take care of Boromir, right? We can't just leave him. Dispensation. That's better, Sarah. That's better. Um, uh, Disposition. 
Alyssa suggests not not disposal. Su- such a bad word. Oh my goodness. Um, disposition. Disposition is best. Disposition. That's the one. Um, yes, for the disposition of Boromir's body. Um, now, Sam did have his little mini funeral, right? You know, he arranged the body with the sword and the stabbing. It was a lot like with Boromir. Um, he has even fewer options for the dispo- for the disposition of Frodo's body than uh, Aragorn and Gimli and Legolas did, right? You know, they're they're like, we can't bury him. Um, uh, we could build a cairn, that is, we could pile rocks up on top of him. Um, uh, you know, and Gimli's like, that'd take a really long time, right? Um, so Boromir, you know, so Aragorn's suggestion, no. Let's give him to the River of Gondor. Perfect solution that, that will also facilitate Faramir's vision later on. Um, so, cool. What does Sam have? He doesn't have a river, right? Um, I guess he could have built a cairn. But again, um, that would have been difficult. Um, just, I'm not sure how relevant this is, but just to throw this out there... Um, the final resting place of the body of uh, of one of the heroic dead being up on a mountaintop um, or uh, or uh, at the top of a high pass has precedent in Tolkien in the Silmarillion. Um, that's where Fingolfin's body ends up, for instance. Um, uh, so, you know... Um, yeah, Yana was just thinking the same thing. Um, yeah, so I'm not convinced that Sam's disposition of Frodo's uh, would-be remains are, uh, or apparent remains, um, is inappropriate or lacking or, um, Again, I don't see what else he could have done. What, like push him off the cliff? That would have been better? Of course, under the circumstances, it wouldn't have been better. Um, but again, is that more reverent? Like, first I shall lay him out, and then I'll huck him off the cliff? I mean, seriously. He could have built a cairn, I guess, is the only possibility. He can't bury him. He can't... He's got no river. What can he do? He did the best he could do, right? You know, he composed his body reverently, you know, in the high pass. You know... I'm kind of down with that. In other words, what I'm getting at is I'm not 100% buying Sam's second argument. Um, When he seems to think he's done wrong, what else could he have done? Uh, You know, and even that voice that says, I shouldn't have left him. I should have died with him. In the end, I don't think I buy that. Again, that seems to... It's not that I don't empathize with it. It's not that I It's not that I don't hear where Sam's coming from there. Um, but... That... Um, um, that's... Oh, wait, hang on a second. <laughs> Yana thinks I'm just quibbling. Uh, he says, yeah, well, as for chucking him over a cliff, isn't that what Aragorn kind of did to Boromir? I mean, isn't a waterfall just a cliff with water running over it? 
yeah, but it's not let's huck him off a cliff, right? I mean, this was, this was, this was let us give him to the river of Gondor. There's a big difference, right? The Anduin is the river, and you know, and, and he, Aragorn says explicitly, uh, you know, the river of Gondor will make sure that no, uh, that no one dishonors his bones, you know, that, that no, that no evil creature dishonors his bones. Um, he is entrusting Gondor uh, he's entrusting Boromir to the river of Gondor. Uh, the fact that a cliff happens to be involved is a is a is a is a coincidence. Um, okay, maybe not a total coincidence, but anyway, it's not the same thing. Um, yeah, I know you were joking, Anna, um, but it is a funny parallel. Um, well, let's let's go on and look at the fourth passage. Because I'm now going to be lucky even to get through Sam. I'm going to end up skipping the Gondor poem again. Anyway, okay. Uh, Sam reeled, clutching at the stone. He's, of course, just overheard that Frodo was still alive. He felt as if the whole dark world was turning upside down. So great was the shock that he almost swooned. But even as he fought to keep a hold on his senses, deep inside him he was aware of the comment, You fool. He isn't dead, and your heart knew it. Don't trust your head, Samwise. It's not the best part of you. The trouble with you is that you never really had any hope. Now what is to be done? The voices began to move away. Sam heard the sound of feet receding. He was recovering from his shock, and now a wild fury was on him. I got it all wrong, he cried. I knew I would. Now they've got him, the devils, the filth. Never leave your master. Never, never. That was my right rule, and I knew it in my heart. May I be forgiven. Now I've got to get back to him. Somehow. Somehow. A third choice? Uh... Second choice. Is it the same as the second choice? Is this a continuation of the Wall of Bodies choice? Alyssa is uh, trying to draw me into another Return of the King discussion, but I shan't be drawn, Alyssa, but I will mention your point anyway. Um, Alyssa says, uh, Pippin's wish before the Black Gate that he and Mary might at least have died together um, indicates that the desire for sticking together even in death is not an uncommon trait in hobbits. Um, yes, yes, I agree. So, and certainly in that way, you could, you could say um, it's not just a Sam suddenly becoming a Germanic hero thing, um, that th- this is also, you know, an expression of something sort of more organically hobbitish uh, in that sense, uh, perhaps. Um, but uh, anyway, um, back to my question about w- w- whether it's a continuation. Uh, Kay says yes. Um, Arthur says no, because now he has hope to go on. Um, I agree, Arthur, there's a distinction there. In, in one sense, they are very similar. But I do think that there's an important distinction in that sense that before it was a choice of despair, right? I don't want... He is rejecting faith in in the sense we were using it before. Remember, Frodo was showing faith. Aragorn was showing faith in destiny, in doom, in providence, right? That things are happening in such a way for a reason. Um, Aragorn is always trying to read those, not always, but frequently trying to read those signs as a way to guide his own choices. Um, Frodo is showing, you know, if voices in chapter in the beginning of chapter one of book four that 
faith, you know, that, that, that faith statement that he makes about, you know, that he believes that a way will be, you know, that a way will open for him to, to go to that, to that, to the, to the black land. Um, Sam makes that second choice, that wall, the wall of bodies choice is the choice of despair. Um, he is turning away. He is he is definitely turning away from sense of destiny from doing, from seeing it through. He's not seeing it through now. Um, die with Frodo in the high pass. Um, is that what he came to do? His impulse of sheer loyalty, right? Of I cannot let that happen to Frodo. I would rather die myself. Um, I must die rather than simply submitting to see Frodo's body desecrated and eaten by orcs. Um, uh, that impulse says, forget fate, forget doom. Um, but Arthur, I agree. Here, he's doing something that's very similar, but it's not fueled by despair anymore. Now it is, in a sense, fueled by hope. And he talks about hope. The trouble with you is that you never really had any hope. He believes he made the wrong choice. Now note, he's not saying I made the wrong choice when I was just going to make a wall of bodies. He made the wrong choice originally when he left Frodo and took the ring and left Frodo. That was the wrong choice. Not because he's turning away from doom, from destiny, from providence, but because he says his own reading of it is... I didn't have enough hope. I didn't show enough faith. What do you make of that? How do you guys understand that? Yeah, K. I agree. There's definitely we can definitely categorize. You know, K. Is sort of saying we could we could identify. You know, option one is the quest above all else, right? You know, the sort of the higher, um, the higher destiny, the higher job. Option two is don't you leave him above all else, right? Exactly. Um, goodness, Kay. Doesn't that sound like means and ends? The first one is an end. See the quest through. Further the quest. Make the quest succeed. Save the world. Right? That's the end. That's the goal. The second is the means. By what means is Sam to do this? Don't you leave him, right? Stick with Mr. Frodo. That was his right rule. Never leave your master. That was the means that he turned away from. Um, in the second choice, he turns away from the end entirely, right? Forget the quest. <clears throat> Forget it's failed, it's done, I'm out, is the second choice, Right? The first one is stick to the end. Keep the goal in view. What do you have to do to make that happen? Well, I guess I've got to take it and go. Right? That's the only thing that makes sense. What he seems to be arguing here is not that the ends were wrong, but the means were wrong. Where did he go wrong? according to him here, would seem to be by doing the sensible thing, right? 
by by I mean it made sense. He reasoned it all out, right? He talked it through. Um, you know, in that last paragraph, uh, you know, I'll go, I'll go, I'll go back here. Um, uh, uh, you know that you know the that last let me see now paragraph, right? He he thinks it all through. Okay, given that this is the end, uh, what's the best way to get there? Well, I'll have to take it. What else can I do? If I stay here, that's obviously dumb, right? Uh, you know, again, you know, his part of that's part of his that's part of his reasoning. Um, if we're found here, or Mister Frodo's found, and the things on him, well, the enemy will get it, and that's the end of everybody, right? So logically, the only way to pursue this, uh, you know, to to achieve the end, is to take it and go. So that's what I should do. But the problem was, he says in retrospect, that showed a failure of hope. And I knew it in my heart, he says. And I knew it in my heart. And your heart knew it. He says that twice, right? Deep down, he knew that he should stick with Mr. Frodo. He knew that it wasn't just a question of, oh, I can't bear to leave his body. I can't bear to go on without him. I shouldn't put myself forward. But that his job, whatever in the big picture, whatever role his service of Mr. Frodo is supposed to serve, whatever ends are in the end brought about by it, what his job was, the job he is supposed to see through, is never leaving his master. Always sticking with Frodo. This, of course, coming back to Luke's point about the parallels at the end of the three books. This is what we see at the end of the Fellowship of the Ring. It's what we see at the end of the Two Towers. Right? Never leave your master. Never, never. May I be forgiven forgiven for doing the wise thing, or the apparently wise thing, instead of the foolish thing. Um, You could say, in a sense, he does, in the first instance, what Aragorn chose not to do. Right? Again, the straight road of the quest for Aragorn is to go after Frodo. We talked about that. Right? Obviously, the smart thing to do. You know, sorry, Merry and Pippin. Um, It's been nice, but I've got to, you know... No. Um, he doesn't do that. Instead, he does the other thing. He follows what his his heart speaks clearly to him at last. Aragorn's heart. Remember, he uses that same language. Um, Sam's heart got all confused. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, A point that Tom made in the email that I alluded to before, which again I really did appreciate, um, which I think is very is very true, and something I was uh, wanting to to mention uh, as well. Remember that this chapter is called the choices of Master Samwise. It's plural, right? There's more than one choice. Um, now, there's a, there's a different way to approach the choices here, right? Um, one is the way we're just doing it. The other is a looking at the logic of events way, right? It's easy to say, well, no, no, wait. Taking the ring is clearly the right thing to do. Had he not taken the ring, the orcs would have found it, and, like, the scenario that he described it would have happened. Maybe. Maybe that's what would have happened. We don't know what would have happened. 
right? Uh, I'm tempted to quote Aslan here from the Chronicles of Narnia, right? No one has ever told what would have happened. Um, yeah, the orcs found Frodo's body and carried him away, because Sam wasn't there. How would it have been different had, had Sam chosen differently? Um, had he, instead of going off and leaving, uh, leaving Frodo, I almost called him Mr. Frodo because I've been, we've, been, we've been talking about Sam all the way through, had he gone and left Frodo, had he not gone and left Frodo lying there, you know, sort of laid out in state in his funereal pose, um, but rather taken Frodo and hidden with him somewhere, maybe even Shelob's lair, He's taking Sheila out, right? She's not in any trouble. There's a nice hiding spot. I don't know. I don't know. Had they gone and hidden with it, you know, would Frodo have then revived when Sam was there? They, don't know. Don't know what would have happened, right? Can't really speculate, speculate with any accuracy. But that's why I think saying, well, looking at what does happen shows that his choices were right. Um, not necessarily, because people make bad choices, which turn out to be for the best, quite a lot, actually. Um, so the fact that the fact that a particular choice ends up contributing to the overall good um, isn't any proof that it was the right thing to have done. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, and I mean, Jordan, I agree. The way it... If you look at the the, the thing that what actually happens, um, you know, as Jordan walks it through, uh, he takes the ring from Frodo so the orcs can't get it. He returns to Frodo, right, making the wall of bodies choices, which enables him to overhear that Frodo is alive, so he can rescue him. Um, so all of these the events do in fact conspire. Each choice that he makes does in fact contribute to the ultimate success of the quest. It might have been different, but it couldn't have been better. I talked about that quotation from before. But my point is, it would have been different. Uh, one way or another, it would have been different. Um, uh, had uh, had he done things differently. Um, anyway. Um, oh, by the way, I wanted to explain my subtitle for this, uh, uh, for this uh, slide and ignorances. Um, uh, that's a, 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 it's a, it's a wonderful term. Uh, this is a, a term from Greek drama. Um, Anagnorisis means a revelation. Um, Anagnorisis is what Macbeth experiences when Macduff says, Macduff was from his mother's womb untimely ripped, and Macbeth is like, oh no! Um, uh, Anagnorisis is what happens uh, when Oedipus realizes that Jocasta is his mom, um, and it is all confirmed that he is in fact the slayer of Laius, his own father, um, that's anagnorisis. Uh, I, my labeling of this moment, anagnorisis, is a little bit of a joke. Sam isn't Oedipus, you know, he's not Macbeth, um, but the effect that it has on Sam is very similar. That whole like realization of something that turns your world upside down. Um, there's something at least anagnorisis-ish about uh, what uh, what is going on here with Sam. Um, 
Yes, Jordan and Arthur were both referring to the moment of anagnorsis, which the Witch King experiences, which is, of course, directly parallel uh, to Macbeth's. Um, yes. Uh, Kay says she still thinks that Sam is too hard on himself. I agree, Kay. I, I also think that Sam is a little hard on himself here. Um, though to me, again, the most fascinating line in all of this is the trouble with you is that you never really had any hope. Um, there's a lot more, I think, that we could say about that. But as Yana is pointing out, Yana is already uh, giving in to despair that uh, we're ever going to talk about the Gondor poem. Want to talk about it anyway? Let's talk about the Gondor poem. I got a little bit of time. It's Monday night instead of Thursday afternoon. My kids are asleep. So let's talk about the Gondor poem. <laughs> um, uh, okay. Here is the sort of spontaneous, the spontaneous poetic utterance of Aragorn when he sees the mountains of Gondor off in the distance. Gondor, Gondor, between the mountains and the sea, west wind blew there, the light upon the silver tree fell like bright rain in gardens of the kings of old. O proud walls, white towers, O winged crown and throne of gold, O Gondor, Gondor, shall men behold the silver tree, or west wind blow again between the mountains and the sea? Two things that we always have to do when we are looking at poems, in general, but especially with Tolkien. First, what is the content of the poem? That is to say, what is, you know, let's make sure we get, in, you know, if, if I can say it this way, the plot. You know, make sure we're understanding what's actually being said here and what is being talked about. Then, we need to listen to it. We need to hear the sound of it and the way that the that uh, the sort of the meter is playing here. Um, Tolkien is almost always very careful in his manipulation of sounds and sound patterns. Okay, so um, so what's this poem about, Gondor? Yeah, okay, but what does he talk about? Okay, Gondor, Gondor, between the mountains and the sea. So he is characterizing. Uh, Gondor in this particular way, between the mountains and the sea. That, by the way, seems to be a north-south view of between, right? This is not the western sea, but the, you know, because the, you've got the White Mountains in the north, and, you know, if you, if you think of the map, you've got the White Mountains in the north, and then you've got Gondor going down to the sea in the Bay of Belfast down there, So I th- and he's looking down from the, sa- from the north on it, so I think that when he his his between there seems to be a north south axis again. That's how I'm understanding his words there. Um, um, so anyway, so he's looking at Gondor from a distance and pointing to sort of the big picture of Gondor geographically speaking. West wind blew there, but now we're not talking north and south. Now we've got the west wind coming in. West wind blew there. The light upon the silver tree fell like bright rain in gardens of the kings of old. Several concepts that we get here. First, the silver tree, of course, which we know to be uh, connected with two things. One to be connected with kingship, as of course the withering of this of the uh, of the white tree, um, the silver tree, uh, in uh, in Minas Tirith is connected with the you know the the um, collapse of the royal line. Um, so we've got so we, we've got the, we've got the idea of kingship, though the fact that he calls it the silver tree and not the white tree um, does also link it back to its ancestors, right? The ancestors of that tree. That is ultimately the tree that was in Numenor, the tree that was in Tolerasea, the tree that was in um, the tree that was in uh, in uh, uh, Tyrion, and then ultimately uh, to Telperion, the silver tree, the silver tree. 
And so, thinking about light falling like bright rain in gardens of the kings of old, um, therefore, seems to... It has a kind of a telescopic effect, if you see what I mean. The gardens of the kings of old are obviously the kings of Gondor of old, right? The old kings of Gondor before the, the, the failure of the line of the kings, you know, when the silver tree, when the white tree was in bloom. But, uh, but at the same time, the, that image of light falling like bright rain associated with a silver tree uh, should also, we see... Gondor, you know, the kings of Gondor in the distance, and then we see on the other side of that, even further back, uh, the kings of really old, uh, that is to say, uh, to the elves and ultimately to the Valar themselves in Valinor, when the light of the silver tree indeed fall like bright rain, and the light was collected into vats there in Valinor, as you may recall. This idea of light as a liquid thing um, is uh, is a, a recurring idea in um, in the Silmarillion tradition, especially the earlier Silmarillion traditions. So, um, okay. So we have so that's one thing that we get here with the light from the silver tree and the gardens of the kings of old, um, and then of course that that Gondor, Numenor, Tolarisea, uh, uh, Tyrion. Um, uh, Valinor, you know, a uh, um, sort of um, perspective that we're getting here seems to be suggested right away by the west wind. Again, we had the north-south axis in line one. Now we're getting the west wind coming in off, uh, not the wind off the sea. Gondor doesn't exactly border the sea to the west, right? There's 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 a lot of other space in there. Um, so, uh, so the west wind coming in is not the reference to the sea from the line one, as far as I can see. Um, but rather seems to be, again, another reminder of the West, capital W, um, which always did inform... That's, that's what got, made Gondor what it was, right? That's what made Gondor special, was its heritage, which goes back through Numenor to Elvenholm and to Valinor beyond it, just as Faramir remembers, right? We look west to Numenor that was, Elvenholm that is, and that which is beyond and shall ever be. And we get that same kind of perspective, I think, here in these two lines, lines two and three, of the Gondor poem. So, we can see the kinds of things that Aragorn is associating with Gondor. Um, you know, not, again, that we start relatively simply with geography, and then we're immediately getting this sort of uh, great uh, and important cultural and spiritu- spiritual heritage um uh yeah good good um yeah ooh i like that alyssa sorry and i i'm i'm going to i'm 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 kind of ripping fast through my poem analysis here so i'm going to be able to respond to even fewer of uh your comments than usual but i did want to just point out that this point that um alyssa Makes if you go back to line one after lines two and three, you can you can see that geography as another meta, as another metaphor um, that it's sort of identifying the Dúnedain of Gondor culturally between the mountains and the sea. You've got the 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 people, the folk of Ered Nimraeus, the you know the the you know the, those people of whom like the Oathbreakers were one, right? The, you know the, the 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 sort of the local non. Numenorean peoples who lived in the White Mountains um, and and the sea, right, being connected with Numenor, 
the sea over which the people from Numenor came. Um, so you've got the high tradition. Remember uh, Faramir's thing about the Numenor, you know, the Gondorians as middlemen, right, between the high and the low. Um, and uh, so again, there's that, there's that kind of vision of Gondor's position um, being between mountains and sea. I kind of like that, Oessa. I think that, I think, I think, I think that works. Um, but anyway, uh, let me keep going. Now he does all of this, um, apostrophe is the poetic term for addressing things like this. O proud walls, white towers, O winged crown and throne of gold, O Gondor, Gondor. Um, the, the parallelism there, all the O's, O proud walls, white towers, O winged crown and throne of gold, O Gondor, Gondor, suggests that O Gondor, Gondor is sort of what he's, you know, he is apostrophizing Gondor in all of those things. That is, we have this series of images which are associated for Aragorn with Gondor. Um, proud walls, white towers, winged crown, and throne of gold. So we have two things which emphasize uh, the strength of Gondor's cities and buildings, and we've had lots of, you know, we, we had Orthanc, right, and how Orthanc couldn't be, um, couldn't be uh, 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 destroyed by the Ents, right, the, the, the strength of Numenorean architecture. Um, uh, so, you know, O proud walls, white towers, a winged crown and throne of gold. Now, again, ex- even more explicitly than before, um, this uh, concept of the kingship of Gondor. Um, but again, notice it's the tokens of kingship. It's the symbols of kingship. Winged crown and throne of gold. The winged crown, which is currently sitting uh, on its own, and the throne of gold, which is currently sitting empty. Right? Um, so you've got the proud walls and white towers, but there's there's no king within them. So he sees the tradition. He sees you know the, the place, um, the important place of Gondor, and yet it's empty. It's lacking that final connection. It's lacking its king. It needs its king. Um, and I, I do not think that this is simply Aragorn puffing himself up, right? Um, you know, uh, oh, Gondor, you need me, right? I, it's more than that. You know, he's, he, he, he is feeling the pull towards Gondor. Um, he knows how important this is. Um, anyway, I'll go on. Gondor, Gondor, shall men behold the silver tree or west wind blow again between the mountains and the sea? Two, so he ends with two questions. we got got lots of exclamation points, right? Um, and then we get two questions. Well, okay, a compound question, technically, but you see what I mean. Shall men behold the silver tree? Um, will the silver tree ever flower again? Um, shall men behold that? Um, or shall the west wind blow again between the mountains and the sea? Between the mountains and the sea, where Gondor is, um, shall the west wind ever blow again between those two? Um, again, that west wind that we had before. Will there ever be a renewing of this Numenorian, Elven, Homian, Valinorian spirit of Gondor? Is that ever going to be refreshed, or is Gondor just going to continue in the decline that Faramir describes? Faramir says we're in decline, right? Um, is that just going to carry on, or will there be a restoration? A restoration of the Silver Tree, um, a return of the West Wind blowing again between the mountains and the sea. Um... And he weaves that question open. This is why I th- it's it's those last two lines in particular. Um, you know that it's that 
lead me not to think, to, or, or rather, leads me to think that an, that an interpretation of those first four lines, which here's Aragorn as simply being pompous here, um, is certainly wrong. He is himself in doubt. He doesn't know if it's going to happen. Um, he knows what Gondor has been. He sees what Gondor should be. He knows his own doom, his own destiny, his own calling uh, is to restore that. Um, he should take up that winged crown and sit on that throne of gold, not because he longs for power and dominion, uh, and that he, uh, uh, he he's, again, it's not a grandiose thing. Um, that's his job as much as it's Sam's job to see it through and never leave your master. Um, and he doesn't know if it's going to happen. Remember, at this moment, he is seeing... He, he has just chosen... We talked about his choices back in class one. Um, he has chosen not only... You know, and, and we, we, we kind of got around to this eventually back in class one. Sorry. Uh, um, that it wasn't just the two choices. Go with Frodo or chase Marion Pippin. There were the three choices, right? Go with Frodo to Mordor, chase Marion Pippin, or go south to Minas Tirith, which is what he really wants to do and what Boromir has laid it on him to do. Um... And he chooses to go after Marion Pippin, so he's turning away uh, from Gondor. And he sees it from a distance, and this is him both recognizing that pole, recognizing that calling that he has towards Gondor, that vision of Gondor that is driving him on, but also turning away from it. And recognizing that since he is turning away from it, he's throwing it up in the air, right? Um... I don't know if men will ever behold the silver tree. I don't know if the west wind will ever blow again between the mountains and the sea. I don't know if this is going to happen. This glimpse of Gondor that I'm having in the distance, it, I might never see it again. Um, I'm now turning my back on Gondor, and it might never happen. Um, uh, good, and now uh, Alyssa is prompting me to move on to this sound. She asks, uh, you know, the enjambment of lines two and three is very prominent. Does it signal a jarring break or a hope for continuation? Um, yeah, the enjambment, the way that lines two and three really, you know, sort of uh, uh, um, just connect right through to each other. There's no break at the end of line two. West wind blew there. The light upon the silver tree fell like bright rain in gardens of the kings of old. Um, yes. The, 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 one thing, I mean, obviously, Alyssa, one very simple thing to say about the enjambment of those lines is, you know, that's why I talked about the two of them together as a unit, um, because the enjambment really, I think, insists on our reading those two things together. The other variance, very significant piece of enjambment that we get is between the last two lines, right? Between lines five and six. The enjambment is not as fluid. There is a pause. It's not really a break um, because it's a compound question, right? But there is a pause. Shall men behold the silver tree or west wind blow again between the mountains and the sea? There's a connection there. There is enjambment there, but it's not quite as, you know, the light upon the silver tree fell like bright rain. You know, the connection between the subject and the verb of that sentence span, right? The, the, the line break comes between subject and verb. That's pretty aggressive enjambment when that happens, right? Um, whereas it is, uh, that, that, that second one down in lines five and six is at a syntactic pause um, in that sentence. But again, I, it's still enjambed, much more so if, if you look at the other three lines, we get two exclamation points in a period, right? You know, we're, we're, we're definitely at ending points there. Um... Now, listen again. Now that we've gone over a little bit of the content of it, just listen 
to the sound of it. Listen to the rhythm. Gondor, Gondor, between the mountains and the sea. West wind blew there. The light upon the silver tree fell like bright rain in the gardens of the kings of old. O proud walls, white towers, O winged crown and throne of gold, O Gondor, Gondor, shall men behold the silver tree or west wind blow again between the mountains and the sea? Notice the changes in rhythm that happen throughout this poem. It's very irregular in its use of rhythm. You'll also notice that the line, the length of the lines varies also. Um, a lot of this poem, especially for the first four and a half lines, is, um, uh, is, uh, is, not, um, is not iambic, it's trochaic. Um, technical poetic vocabulary, that means the basic poetic meter is in a two-beat uh, line. It's, it's, it's alternating stress and unstressed for the most part. Um, it's not in a, like a, a, a triplet beat. Um, uh, most poetry, most poetry that, 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 that scans as, as, as Western poetry has traditionally scanned, um, most, um, uh, uh, syllabic poetry like this either scans into two beat feet or three beat feet, um, to illustrate three... By, by the way, whenever I illustrate poetry, the clearest illustration of poetic meter is always Dr. Seuss, who is a genius of poetic meter. Um, so if you think there are many Dr. Seuss books that are written in a three-beat foot, um, such as the Sneetches, for instance. For the star-bellied Sneetches had bellies with stars, but the plain-bellied Sneetches had none upon theirs. bum 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 You hear the three beats, right? Um... Uh, um, the Grinch that Stole Christmas, too, that's in the same anapestic meter with the three beats. Um, uh, uh, anyway. Um, uh, or it alternates in two beats. Um, do you like green eggs and ham? I do not like them, Sam. I am... Um, I would not, could not, in a boat. I would not, could not, with a goat. Bum, 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 bum. That's iambic. Unstressed, stressed, unstressed, stressed. Um, trochaic meter is in two beats like that, but it has the stress at the beginning. So instead of bum, 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 it goes bum, 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 bum. Um, in case you're wondering if there's a Dr. Seuss book that's written in trochaic meter, of course there is. There's a Walket in My Pocket is written in trochaic meter. Um, uh, have you ever had the feeling there's a wasket in your basket, or a nook, or a or a neuro in your bureau, or a Walket in your pocket? Um, uh, that's trochaic meter. Um, now, um, we <laughs> sorry, uh, uh, sorry. Luke has just arrived in time for the Dr. Seuss segment. Yes, it's poetry time. So, okay, um, I say all this to set up my observation that the first few lines of this poem are predominantly trochaic. Gondor, Gondor. The stress on the at the beginning. It's alternating unstressed, stressed. It's it's clearly two beats. Gondor, Gondor. Between the mountains and the sea. Um, West wind blew there. And what just happened there? West wind blew there? It doesn't really alternate at all. 
That is what in technical poetic language we call spondy. Uh, that is several equally stressed syllables all kind of slapped in there together. West wind blew there. The light upon the silver tree fell like bright rain in gardens of the kings of old. That third line barely scans at all. Does it sound almost like prose? Fell like bright rain in gardens of the kings of old. There's a little bit of rhythm there, but it's kind of erratic. Um, it's not very... Fl- Again, contrast. Fell like bright rain in gardens of the kings of old with, or west wind blow again between the mountains and the sea. You hear it? The last line of this poem is mellifluous in its rhythm. It is almost perfectly regular. Or west wind blow again between the mountains and the sea. Uh, Shall men behold the silver tree? That is absolutely perfect. Shall men behold the silver tree? Um, Perfect iambic meter with shall men behold the silver tree. Fell like bright rain in gardens of the kings of old. Scans erratically, poorly. O proud walls, white towers, O winged crown and throne of gold, has again that uh, that trochaic feel, um, with the stress at the beginning of the syllables. Fell like bright rain and uh, no. O proud walls, white towers, O winged crown and throne of gold, O Gondor, Gondor, shall men behold the silver tree or west wind blow again between the mountains and the sea? That shift from this explosive, trochaic rhythm. Oh, proud walls, white towers, with the emphasis of all those exclamation points, right? Four exclamation points in a line and a half. Um, Three O's in a line and a half, right? And all that proud walls, white towers, winged crown, Gondor, Gondor, stressing at the beginning of the line, and then, shall men behold the silver tree or west wind blow again between the mountains and the sea? I don't know if we read too much into the shift in meter, but certainly, um, you know, I think I think you can read too much into it, and I'm usually inclined to do so. Um, but at the same time, I um, I do think that this, at the very least, what we can say is that um, it is um, at the very least what we can say is that there's a significant shift that this shows us a different atmosphere of those last few lines. I think even the irregularity of the light upon the silver tree fell like bright rain in gardens of the kings of old. Um, it's interesting, and that's sort of looking back at the past. There, I am tempted to say that those lines are like... He's talking about Gondor and how Gondor has, uh, has decreased. You know, the decline of Gondor... And our poem is declining from its structure here. Um, it's falling, you know, just as the Gondorians have ceased to become high anymore, our verse has almost ceased to become poetry uh, and become prose. Um, we go back into poetic apostrophe in that, um, uh, that again, that sort of staccato, trochaic um, uh, sound, but then... Then we slide into that much more musical, much more rhythmic, much more forward-moving. Shall men behold the silver tree? Now we're not looking back at the past anymore, um, from which we've declined. Um, Nor is he contemplating the present, because we could do it chronologically too, right? The past of Gondor, the present of Gondor, proud walls, white towers, winged crown, and thorn of gold, all 
empty of kingship, but anyway, um, then to future. Shall men behold the silver tree, or west wind blow again between the mountains and the sea? That vision of the future, which is beautiful, which is harmonious, bringing all of these things back together, the men, the tree, the west wind, the mountains and the sea, um, all joined together in this uh, in this beautiful harmony which sort of moves you along uh you know with it towards the future in this in this beautiful rhythm which is so characteristic of uh of quite regular iambic meter um i think it's uh pretty cool i you know for myself i am inclined to read quite a bit into the 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 shifts in the sounds of this poem um because of the way it it maps on to that past, present, future thing, and, uh, um, anyway, I, I, I think that this is, this is a poem that I would actually kind of point to as one illustration, the, uh, Where Now the Horse and the Rider poem that we looked at before, that we, the one we actually did get to back in this class, this first class, uh, from which I have, uh, copied this PowerPoint slide, um, that, that poem also, uh, illustrates, as we talked about a little bit, how Tolkien uses the sound of the verse to um, kind of point to and uh, um, give us cues to uh, the content. It really kind of goes hand in hand with the content, you know, different ways in which Tolkien is kind of getting at uh, the meaning of the poem. Um, but anyway, I think that this 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 poem does that does that very strongly. So. Thank you for uh, your patience uh, with uh, me uh, getting into uh, English teacher lecture mode here on uh, poetry. You know, I'm sure you all know how much I love talking about poetry. So thank you for indulging me. And thank you, Yana, uh, for uh, uh, giving uh, me the prompt uh, to go back and do that again. Um, Now, many of you have asked questions, have either sent me questions by email or proposed questions before. we will meet again on Thursday, uh, according to the regular schedule. I think, by the way, from now on, uh, this was kind of our pilot Mythgard Academy class. This one doesn't count towards the fundraiser. I'm just kind of doing this one for free to uh, sort of remind people of what these free classes, you know, to kind of give people an example to be able to see what these classes, uh, you know, that I'm that I'm talking about and I'm proposing in the Mythgard Academy are like. Um, and um, uh, anyway, so. Um, as I said, this so this class is kind of a pilot class. One thing I think I'm going to do differently moving forward, I'm going to pull back, instead of doing two sessions a week, I'm going to do one session a week when we come back and we start doing the uh, the, the rest of the Mythgard Academy classes for this coming year. Um, because I, I think that it's been a little bit too much for some people to keep up with, especially since our class sessions are long. So people who can't participate are having a hard time being able to stay up. And so I think a lot of people have kind of dropped out of the live participation um, because they've fallen behind uh, and they're listening to it now, um, uh, you know, sort of more slowly. And I want to be sensitive to that. Um, so, uh, yeah, Yana, I will, the, just because I'm shifting to once uh, once a week doesn't mean I'm going to uh, abandon my commitment to do some European-friendly time zones. And I just got an email uh, today asking me to remember to do uh, some Asian-friendly time zones, too. I'll try. Uh, times, I'll try. Um, that's not always easy, uh, but I might be able to do it. Um, so, you know, we'll, we'll kind of experiment with some different times, and I, I promise to try to mix it up a little bit um, as we move forward. So just because we're, I'm going to do the classes once a week doesn't mean it'll always be at the same time. I will try to mix it. Um, but we are going to do... Um, we are going to do... Um, uh, 
once a week uh, from now on. But since we've been doing it twice a week, we might as well keep doing it twice a week until we finish, which we shall finish on Thursday. So Thursday, uh, same time that it's been. That's the, 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 the Europe-friendly time, uh, 4.30 p.m. Eastern time. Um, uh, so we will be... Uh, um, I will, I've already gathered together some of the questions. Uh, you still have a chance. Okay, this means you have several more days in which to email me um, your uh, questions about, uh, that you would like me to uh, address or you'd like us to discuss. I hope to be able to uh, address more of your um, more of your questions and comments as we go. So, um, but but we really we're actually gonna finish on Thursday. Thursday will surely be the end. Uh, so thanks very much, uh, everybody, for your discussion. This was a really fun... I'm glad we did an extra class, because uh, I think I understand Sam's choices way better now than I did before. So I'm grateful to you for helping me work my way through it. You know, I forget who it was was talking about Sam being like... Um, being like... Uh, uh, um, Butterbur and seeing through a brick wall in time, but really needing to work it through... Um, I feel exactly the same way. I am totally like Butterbur in that way. I don't know if I don't always actually succeed in seeing through the brick wall, but it always takes me time, whether I do or not. Um, so working through it together with you guys uh, helps me to understand um, helps me to understand this stuff way better um, than I ever do. Even before, even after I've done my you know my my rereading and my prep and thinking you know in preparation for class. I always come out of the class having learned much more than uh, I came into it with. So anyway, thank you guys again for for uh, joining with me in this little adventure tonight. Um, so see you guys on Thursday afternoon. Bye now.